I was really clear from the beginning that like, okay, I will prioritize my practice. I will prioritize making art. The best piece of advice I got in undergrad was whatever you do, don't stop making. You're listening to Art and Magic, and I'm your host, Devin Walls. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the show. If you are aspiring to be a working artist, which I'm thinking most of you listening to this show are, but maybe not all, but if you are, you are going to love today's conversation with Grace Lee Lawrence. As a working artist or an aspiring working artist, I think we tend to have a lot of questions about how other people are doing this and what people's journeys have looked like, what nuggets can we take to apply to ourselves, and how can we make this sustainable, and how can we keep making our work. And I feel like this conversation with Grace Lee really got into the nitty gritty of some of those answers. Not only was Grace Lee incredibly honest about how she's navigated being a working artist and what her path has looked like, but she was so engaging to talk to and listen to. I found her to be somebody with really rich perspectives on a lot of these topics, which was just really fun for me and um, I think you're really going to enjoy. So we touch on all kinds of things in this conversation, but just a few of them are uh, the fundamentals of gatekeeping in the art world and what she tries to focus on in order to counterbalance that, um, how she's used art residencies to support her practice, what her journey has looked like since she does make large and expensive work that doesn't always sell. Um, how she's supported herself, how she got into digital fabrication and sculpture, as well as how she navigates accessibility in her work, particularly as it applies to public art. So lots to look forward to in this conversation. Before we get into it, I do have a couple things to mention, just logistics about the show and announcements. First of all, I want to say thank you so much to everybody who has made their way over to the Patreon. It really is what helps keep the show up and running so that new episodes can keep coming out. Um, at the start of next month, which if you're listening to this in real time, should be next week, we have our new Patreon exclusive bonus episode that'll be released because a bonus episode comes out on the first of every month over there. And this month is going to be with Sarah Schroeder and we get into so many things of a similar nature. Um, so if you have questions about being a working artist and navigating social media and productivity and prices and like all those kinds of things, you're going to really enjoy that conversation with Sarah. If you'd like to join us over there, the link to the Patreon is in the show notes. Um, other ways to support the show are to leave a rating and review or to share about the episodes you're listening to over on Instagram. These things go such a long way. Um, and they don't cost any money, which is also such a bonus. So if you're on the Apple podcast app to leave us a review, you just scroll down, hit the five stars if you feel so inclined and leave us a little note about what you've been enjoying. And on Instagram, be sure to tag us at art and magic podcast. And if you would like to tag my personal account, you can do so as well at Devin Walls Art. All right, so now that the logistics are out of the way, um, if you don't already know Grace Lee Lawrence, she creates sculptures that explore the relationships between food, the body, and technology. She has attended 20 residencies in the U.S. and abroad and opened her first solo show in New York at Thierry Goldberg in May 2019. 
She is currently a visiting assistant professor of sculpture at the University at Albany. She is a member of the collective Material Girls, a 2016-17 Loose Scholars Fellow, a recipient of the 2015 UMLAUF Prize, 2013 Eyes Got It Prize, and the 2011-2012 Ella Fountain Pratt Emerging Artist Grant. Press for her work includes The New Yorker, Artnet, Hyperallergenic, Artspace, Beautiful Decay, and Make Magazine, among others. She's an enthusiastic dancer, a lifelong horsewoman, and an aspiring indoor gardener. So without further ado, I give you my conversation with Grace Lee Lawrence. All right, cool. Um, so I was wondering if you could kick us off by telling us a little bit about your work, like giving us an idea and a visual um, for those who haven't seen it. Yeah, yeah, sure. So my work is operating in what I call the transfigurative space between digital and physical reality. So I'm thinking a lot about what it means to translate objects and emotions and physicalities between physical and digital space. And oftentimes that means I'm using digital fabrication in order to accomplish some of those goals. So I'm doing a lot of 3D scanning and 3D printing, sometimes CNC routing, but then also handwork on the sculptures and I'm primarily making sculptures. So I'm, I'm really thinking about these two parallel lines. One is what does it mean to exist between digital and physical reality and how does that affect our perception of what realness is, and then also our relationship with food and bodies and of the complication of our organic beings and how those two things intersect in our lives. Um, and the natural compartmentalization that we'd seem to often keep between the two, but in fact, they're both so much a part of our current state of affairs. Love that. Um, yeah, that is totally fascinating how did you how did you get into that did you start um did you start with sculpture did you start with the 3d printing did you always have an interest in the digital like how did that how did that interest come to be i started with sculpture classic standard you know like learning how to weld etc actually all of my undergrad work was welded steel Mm. completely divorced from anything digital i didn't start to do anything digital until grad school actually and have been doing sculpture forever. I mean, was doing clay sculpture in middle school, you know, was like interested in what it meant to deal with physicality and materials and was really excited about what that meant, but didn't really understand what sculpture was, of course, until college really. Had seen it, had spent a lot of time around it, but didn't understand the potential. So in grad school, I had the really wonderful fortune of working with Eric McMaster, who's an amazing digital fabricator and sculptor and was able to work really closely with him in learning digital fabrication for one specific project. So I was doing an outdoor public fountain project and that was the moment that I started thinking about image-based understanding rather than material-based understanding of the work. Because prior to that I had been using, um, I had been using fruit as a material. So I've been using like juicer pulp and pineapple crowns and salt and flour and these things that we have a more of a one-to-one relationship with in terms of what enters our bodies and the kind of the degradation of body and food material. But I started using the image of these fruits and foods instead. So I had this one um, nine foot fountain that was a banana holding a pear. And so that was a replication of this 
really ridiculous bronze sculpture that happened to be on the site where I made that happen. So I started thinking about accessibility in image and accessibility is a super important part of why I use digital fabrication and, and why I have incorporated it into my practice so heavily. Um, because especially with public work, I want as many inroads as possible to communicate the ideas that I'm trying to bring. And so the accessibility of image is one way that I can kind of make a more even playing field for people who are experiencing the work and digital fabrication allow me to do that. Also pragmatically, there's a, a replication and kind of longevity of material that I'm able to accomplish that I certainly was not able to with the other types of working. And that's one reason why I swapped to that way of thinking. But pretty soon after I started using digital fabrication, actually it was when I was living in Thailand um, on a fellowship, on the Loose Scholars Fellowship, I pretty much only had my digital fabrication set up. I didn't have any other tools. My department I was working in didn't have any other tools. And so I had one 3D printer and one 3D scanner. And it was at that moment that I started thinking about digital fabrication in a really different way. I started thinking about it as this mode of translating emotional material, not just sculptural material, because I was so far away from my community and, and my family and the people that really supported me. And so digital technology became the way that I felt connected and, and felt held and felt beheld. And so I started to think about my sculptures in the same way. Like what happens when I translate image object material through these series of processes? Can I capture some of that? Is it possible to capture a kind of physical translation of this emotional space? And so that was the beginning. And that was really in late 2016, early 2017. And since then, it's become much more than just a means to an end. It's, it's an absolute bedrock of the conceptual structure of how I think about the work. Mm, yeah. I want to go back to the point you mentioned about accessibility um, and how working digital lends to that. Um, I'm curious as to why that is, because that's not something that I had thought about, like working digitally lending to accessibility. So I was wondering if you could explain that a little bit more. Yeah. Yeah. Well, in the in terms of how I was thinking about it originally, I was really thinking about the experience of someone walking up to a piece and having no reference to sculptural materials, having no reference to my previous work, and what can they immediately feel connected to or have some kind of immediate conversation with. And so one point of contact in my work is often humor. Um, another is accessibility of image in particular. So like mm. actually, you know, you're able to see the folks listening will be able to see, but there's a, a pair on a pedestal behind me in my studio. Yeah. That most people have some understanding or relationship with the food object. Mm -hmm. They have felt it before. They understand what it feels like to eat it. They have a taste sensation, a smell sensation. They have a tactile sensation. So there's this reference that feels easier and more generous in mm -hmm. using an image that someone recognizes in terms of the sculptural world that I'm operating in. That's not yeah. to undercut abstraction or like um, stylized nature of many ways of thinking about work. But when I'm particularly considering public work, I really want that level of accessibility because I don't, the last thing I want to do is to make work that feels as though it's only for a specific subset of the population. You know, yeah. those levels of accessibility, and there can be so many in any given piece, are really important to me, especially yeah. because I grew up in a really rural area. There was no public art at all. 
in rural North Carolina. I mean, I was really fortunate that my family would take me to Raleigh to the North Carolina Art Museum and we would spend time there. But there was very little thought to what was around us and, and what, what was, what kind of aesthetically was affecting the community. And so I like to think, okay, well, would my neighbors growing up have the ability to be interested and engage with this object? Like that, that's a barometer that I'm interested in dealing with, not only speaking to populations who care about art making. Mm-hmm. Okay. I have so many questions in there. So we might have to like circle back around to a couple of things. Um, but just kind of while we're on the topic of your beginnings and, and like how you entered this work, growing up in a rural area, it sounds like your, your parents did offer exposure, but did you, yeah. oh, and it sounds like you're working with sculpture from a young age too, but did you think that you would go down this kind of like artist path? Um, yeah. Okay, how did that come about? <laughs> no, definitely not. I mean, I'm really, really lucky that my family has been super supportive. And my grandmother is a painter. My mom is a graphic designer. I did photography in undergrad. Um, aunts and uncles are artists in, in multiple ways and definitely amazing craftspeople. So I grew up around the idea of art making, but I, I grew up around no working artists. Mm-hmm. Like no one who had dedicated their entire lives to this thing. It was always like, you can be super interested in that and you can have this as an enriching part of your life, but this is not your primary focus. And this is not the way that you earn money for sure. And so from the very beginning, when I showed interest in, in becoming an artist, my family was like, okay, well, that's great. But practically speaking, what does this mean? Um, not to dissuade me, but I think out of care. So I was certainly exposed to art making. I spent a lot of time in museums with my grandmother growing up, which is such a wonderful part of my relationship with her. And she actually has been so supportive and like has, that's a whole nother story and conversation, but has really been a person who has been there for me every step of the way um, Mm -hmm. in encouraging my art practice. But there was no reference point as to how to be a working artist and how to build a sustainable career other than my family be like being there and wanting to support me and helping me haul around sculptures, which is huge. But like how to make a sustainable career, that's a whole nother conversation, really complicated. Also it's changing all the time. It's changed in the past 10 years in huge ways. So like that has been just me. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) So, okay. So you were making art, engaged with art making, not thinking of it as a career sense. And then you were like, well, I'm going to go to art school anyway. Or how did that kind of go? Yeah. Well, I went to a really small liberal arts school in Greensboro, North Carolina. It's a Quaker school, Guilford College. And Mm -hmm. it's a wonderful place. I felt so supported. Um, There's a, as is the case with most liberal arts schools or all liberal arts schools, I studied so many different things. I had this really wonderful, diverse education. But I learned what sculpture was and felt so excited that this direction of thought and action fit perfectly with my desires and needs in the world and like how I best Mm. represent myself. And so once I learned that sculpture existed and started to understand the parameters of what it meant to work in that way, I was like, oh, this is exactly what I've been looking for. And so it wasn't as though I had an understanding of what it was and knew I wanted to go down that path. It took me a little bit of time to navigate that process. But also, of course, as is often the case with these smaller schools, I had an amazing faculty who supported me in that process and kind of like let me at it. 
gave me a huge amount of leeway in terms of what I wanted to make and how I wanted to approach it. And I did a, I don't know, five or six independent studies and kind of found my own path in this structure that wasn't necessarily built for what I was doing. It would have been very different if I had gone to an art school proper, I'm sure. Mm. But it was what I needed at the time, you know? And, and I needed that little roundabout way of understanding my needs. Um, I can't imagine what it would have been like to go to a big art school. Mm. I had a really different experience because I was the exception, you know, mm-hmm. rather than the rule. Yeah. So, okay. So you're in art school, you're feeling supported, like making what you want to make, you're discovering sculpture. Um, I am interested to come back to that career piece, like especially mm-hmm. coming from, I think, honestly, unless you're very lucky, what most of us come from, which is no idea and no, <laughs> no, um, like close living examples of working artists mm-hmm. in our early lives. Yeah. Um, what were the steps after that? Like, what were you learning in terms of, okay, how do I actually make this the thing that I'm mainly going to do? Yeah. Oh gosh. I mean, I feel like I'm still doing that. Yeah. Right? Or what have you up until this point then? <laughs> <laughs> so much, so much has happened. Well, yeah, I guess I'll start from the beginning instead of working backwards. That makes the most sense. Especially at the beginning, I was just literally taking any opportunity, anything mm. I would do it. And that was my way of kind of taste testing the world and determining what tasted good and what didn't. And what I wanted to enter into my life and what I did not. And so it took a lot of trial and error, of course. But I lived in North Carolina for two years after undergrad and worked as many weird side jobs, part-time side jobs as I could while also maintaining my practice. And also um, another aspect of my life is that I am a lifelong horse person, I spent my entire high school and middle school too, but like high school really intensely competing. And so there was a moment in my life where I really had to choose between writing professionally and doing art professionally. And I chose art making because I, well, doing courses professionally is even more difficult financially and sustainably. And I didn't have the capacity to do it, but also I wanted that part of my life to maintain this kind of like purity that I Mm. felt like I could maintain in my art practice more easily. Which is weird because now I understand way more that it's tainted by the market and it's tainted by like capitalism and commercialism in this way that I didn't understand then, but I still feel like I could make different barriers around my art practice that I have been able to maintain over time. And a part of that is because big sculptures are really difficult to sell. So that's never really been on the table for me. Mm. I feel like I'm really, I'm talking around this question. No, you're, so you're much. given lots of good things that we are going to come back to. <laughs> there is just so much, but, um, but yeah, I, I, I was really clear from the beginning that like, okay, I will prioritize my practice. I will prioritize making art. The best piece of advice I got in undergrad was whatever you do, don't stop making. I, I have absolutely set up the past 10 years of my life to revolve around my ability to make work. So that meant working with part-time jobs that gave me days off in the studio. That meant, you know, working out of my parents' garage for a year because that was the place I could afford. That meant um, not having my own apartment for a while because I needed to dedicate all of my time and resources to making work. So I was kind of ready and willing to make those sacrifices and don't regret any of them. That's the direction I chose. But also recognize that 
in my perspective now, I spent a lot of time in places that didn't really have the capacity to support my work. Like living in North Carolina, a place that I love and is dear to me and anyone from North Carolina who listens to this, please don't hold this against me. But the type of work that I make in the art world that I need to be a part of is not there. Mm. It's just not. Now it is much easier with the widespread explosion of Instagram and other platforms to be wherever you need to be and make the work and connect to communities. In 2011, when I graduated from college, that was not the case. Mm -hmm. I mean, Instagram didn't exist yet and was not a part of the art world. And so things have changed so much. The ability to situate yourself in place and be so much less constricted by geography is, well, it comes with its own big pile of digital complications. But at that time, I was working out of that place and I pretty much like sucked up every opportunity that I could in North Carolina and I was like okay it's time for me to go to grad school then Mm. and that's when I went to grad school okay um yeah applied both years between undergrad and grad school the first year things didn't work out just the places that I got in I didn't feel like I could go there pragmatically or I didn't feel connected to and then the second year got into UT Austin was deciding between UT Austin and Cranbrook and decided that I didn't want a wild amount of debt so Austin, because pragmatics are important to me I, and that was a good decision for me because now I don't have you know two hundred thousand dollars of debt that I'm handling on top of my practice which to me was an important thing mm-hmm. although also the longer I'm in this world the more I recognize that name recognition is of course important and you know people who go to Yale do get a lot of shows but also I don't have a lot of debt so you know yeah depends on priorities it's a pro and a con (laughs) yeah 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 but I I also don't regret that decision because it's given me a lot of freedoms that I wouldn't have had otherwise Mm. so I'm I like what you said about um you were taking every opportunity and so yeah what have been and then I I also kind of perked up when you said like you know I make large sculptures those are hard to sell I'm wondering about like especially, and we're going to get more into this, like this conversation about like capitalism and commercialism, like how have you made this financially work in a way that feels good to you? Um, Just anything you want to share about like what you've learned and what that looks like? Yeah, that is such a great question. I mean, as I mentioned a little bit before, from the very beginning, I, I had no delusions of being able to support myself from our making. And it's really only in the past... I don't know, two years that I'm selling anything regularly at all. So it mm-hmm. has never, it's never been a part of my practice that I've prioritized or expected anything from, for mm-hmm. better or worse. You know, I'm not saying that that's the only way or the right way, but that was the right way for me in prioritizing how to negotiate my work and figuring out the conceptual, formal, physical structure of what these things mean. I don't think that I could have done that quite so well if I was thinking about sales, but mm-hmm. also pragmatically. I'm I'm looking over here because there are like lots of big objects in this room. All of these big objects are very expensive to make and to produce. And so it really limits the population who's able to support them. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, hopefully in the future, they will have homes and they will be enjoyed and they will like live their lives outside of my studio in that way. And some of them do, particularly the public things and the larger things, but um, the making of the work and the conversations they have are more important to me than sales. But talking about accessibility kind of circling back to that idea in the past year and a half I've started making 
3D printed editions of my work at different scales, at different price points. And I didn't expect this to come into my practice in the way that it has, but what it has allowed me to do is kind of the opposite of, or not the opposite, but the other end of the spectrum of what public work is able to do in that I'm able to scale work to a level where people, many people, because you know the smallest things are like $50, can afford them and bring them into their lives and enjoy them and live with them and not feel as though art collecting is something that has to be relegated to the super rich only. And this is an important point of access for me too, because it's very important to me that the objects and the ideas that are embedded in the objects go out into the world and do their jobs. They're not going to do their jobs if they're sitting with me in my studio. So mm -hmm. that can happen at a variety of different scales. And I'm really pleased that people are excited about existing with these things. Yes, myself included. I thoroughly enjoy my 3D printed rack and I have my eye on more things in the future. Um, yeah, so I know, and I know you had mentioned too, um, I think over Instagram that you were like looking into make more like household type, type yeah. items. And I was yeah, thinking yeah. about that with the accessibility. Um, yeah, I love that point about how it's like the other side of the spectrum of public art, you know, because public art can be enjoyed by all, but it's not going to be lived with. Yeah. Um, so yeah, that's very, very cool. I'm interested too in this idea, because I think so many artists face this, right? It's like, okay, I really want to make this thing and engage with my process and it's expensive and it probably won't sell um, or maybe it will, but way down the line. Mm -hmm. um, so do you do other things in your practice to support that kind of making? Um, is that ever a dilemma for you? Like material cost, time cost? I think these are just all things that mm -hmm. I know I deal with. Um, yeah, and I'm wondering like what questions come up for you or, or ways that you support that. Yeah, that's a really good question. So I, I will, I'll work backwards on this question rather than yeah. the other way. So I'm really, really super fortunate and really grateful that right now I have a full-time teaching position at SUNY mm. Albany. So right now I teach, I have a salary, I can afford to have this studio, which is the first time ever that I've been able to pay for a studio. So it, it's big news to me that this is possible and it's only because I have this job. Um, also, I'm able to afford materials. So I'm able to like up at the studio and that's all because of this job. Prior to this, I could not afford to do such. I also had a teaching job last year, full-time position at Kenyon College. I was able to work out of the sculpture studio there, mostly because there are no studios. It's a very small place. But um, prior to that, I was doing residencies. I did about 20 residencies in nine years and wow. was really all over the place. For the majority of that time, did not live anywhere. It was between residency to residency and would kind of go back to North Carolina between them if I needed to. So I had a remote job for a lot of that time. Uh, I did not enjoy that, but it allowed me to do what I needed to do, which was go from place to place, make in different places, be a part of a lot of different communities and was honestly living pretty meager lifestyle and just kind of like getting by as much as I could and putting everything back into sculpture that I was able to. That was not a sustainable way to live. Mm -hmm. I would have kept doing it for as long as I needed to, but it was, it's not a long-term sustainable way to live. And especially when I was really fortunate to get the job at Kenyon, I was like really down to the last of, of my ability to do that for a while. So you know, timing was lucky, I suppose. Mm -hmm. But um, 
it's really tough. It's extremely hard, especially, especially with an expensive practice. Mm, yeah. It's really hard. And I mean, all practices to some degree, it's either your time or materials or fabrication or whatever. It, it, it's all demanding and it, and it all will kind of like take, take from you. But in the way that my work functions and that the materials are not inexpensive, especially in doing 3D printer repairs and the amount of filament that I use and the way that they're built and also my time because I'm fabricating it all myself, Mm -hmm. it's really quite expensive. So uh, if you looked at the decisions I've made on a financial level, uh, it looks horrible. You know, it looks really bad. Like an account. I love that because it's so relatable for all artists. <laughs> oh, so disgusting. Like, yeah. What are you doing? You don't sell any of these things. They're just like sitting on a shelf. You spend so much money and you spend all your time. And like, <laughs> what are you doing? Well, I have to do it. I don't really have yeah. a choice. You know, this is, this is the thing that I have to do. But um, I'm, yeah, right now I'm in a position where I'm not precarious, which is the also the exception rather than the rule of my adult life as an artist. Mm. So. Yeah. I, I really love the look into all that and appreciate you sharing. Um, yeah. I, I interviewed another artist on the last season who was kind of like, you know, this is like the worst business plan literally ever. <laughs> it takes a really special person to be like, yes, that this is a good plan for me. Make yeah. a lot of work. That's very expensive and time consuming. It makes very little money. Yeah. Yeah. Um, ah, exactly. Yeah. But I love. I, there's also something I think for those of us relate that's really endearing about that because those of us who know the feeling of like, well, it wasn't really my choice. Like this is this is what's going to happen. So so here we are. I think is um, very relatable. And then yeah, feels good to hear from others too. So and I feel yeah. like part of that is related to what we were talking about earlier. And that I had such little idea about what it meant to be a working artist that I didn't realize really practically speaking what this meant Mm. you know I don't think I would have made a different decision necessarily at 22 but I certainly did not know that I was going to be spending the next nine years working my butt off for very little financial return Mm -hmm. I didn't really know what it meant but that's okay yeah Sometimes it's better if you don't fully know, yeah, <laughs> especially yeah. if you would have made the decision anyway. That's probably was a helpful <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> naivety. <laughs> Save yourself some heartbreak in making that decision. Yeah, totally. Mm-hmm. Um, okay, so a couple things came up in there. I want to come back to this conversation about residencies because mm-hmm. um, there's some interesting questions I have. But while we're kind of on this topic, it's, it's been woven in, but about accessibility. Um, I'm interested to hear your perspectives on gatekeeping because it sounds like that's something, you know, and wanting to make your work accessible in these different ways. It sounds like you've observed that. And I think it's important, at least helpful, I know for myself to hear, um, here's how things are gatekept because it just helps me feel like, oh, I'm not crazy. This is a real thing. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'd love to hear what you've observed. And then also ways that um, yeah, you've found to work around it. Um, maybe that's like spaces you've found yourself in. Maybe it's the kind of work you're making. Um, any thoughts you have in that department? Yeah. Well, oh gosh, that's a, yeah, that's, that's a, it's a huge topic. (laughs) I mean, the art world, unfortunately is built on scarcity and exclusion. Mm. 
to some degree, if you want to really just boil it down to the nastiest parts, that's, mm-hmm. that's true. Uh, the scarcity of work is what drives up the price. Mm-hmm. You know, if you think about, think about people like Rauschenberg. Okay. Well, there are only, there's a finite amount of his work available in the world. It is priced at whatever specific price it may be. And people want to be in the club of those who are able to afford and have one of these objects that is operating in a certain amount of space. And of course, there are people all along the way who are like gatekeeping access to these things, whether they be gallery directors or curators or academics or advisors or whoever. Well, that's a really specific example, mm-hmm. uh, of course. And in any aspect of the art world, there's gatekeeping to a certain degree. Some of it, I feel, is not necessarily meant to be antagonistic Mm -hmm. it's meant to keep the idea of quality high whether it's quality of object or idea or whatever but it it can very easily devolve into something that becomes nasty Mm. and and i think anyone who's spent any amount of time in the art world can see that Mm -hmm. manifesting to some degree um you know it's really easy to kind of get down the black hole of doom and gloom about gatekeeping in the art world, but also there are so many wonderful humans in it as well. And that's the thing that I try to focus on more is Mm. who, who's in my community, who am I supporting, who's supporting me? What do I care about? What ideas do I care about? Who else is thinking about these things? And that's, that's where I kind of choose to focus my energy. And a part of how I've done that in the past, when I was in grad school in Austin, I started a gallery with a friend and we were really thinking about what it meant to be people who showed work and what work we were showing and what conversations we wanted to have. And it was completely, we, di- we didn't ever sell a thing. And that wasn't the point. You know, we were operating from this really different perspective where we really were trying to make shows and we did two person shows only. And we we're trying to make two person shows that created this amalgam of thought and conversation and discussion that we felt was necessary for the community that didn't exist otherwise. So mm. like, that was one way that I've done it. Another way that's really very dear to me is the collective that I'm in, Material Girls. Mm. And this, well, they're my closest friends. I mean, I don't text anyone more than I text them. Every single day we have, you know, 50 messages in our group thread. But I feel as though being around these other really amazing, powerful female identified makers and our extended community, which now is like really big and wonderful and super enriching is the way that we kind of refocus the conversation on care and support and excitement and what it means to be doing this stuff, what it means to be making objects, what it means to be a female identified maker. So those are ways that I've tried to kind of shift the conversation in my own mind and, and practice away from things that seem difficult. But the best thing that I've found is just, you know, surround yourself by people that you care about, people who you want to support and who support you and kind of figure out how to shift the focus away from the gatekeeping systems. And mm-hmm. luckily, we live in a moment in time where things like Instagram do allow for a different level of access. Mm-hmm. And, you know, collectors are not necessarily evil. So sometimes, you know, like, 
I, I don't want to completely disparage that part of the art world, but like Instagram will allow for connections directly between direct collectors and artists or, you know, allow conversations between artists that wouldn't have been able to exist otherwise. So there are points of connection now and possibilities that didn't exist in the past, mm -hmm. but it's, you know, it's still difficult to see that a lot of decisions are not being made for the good of the work or for the good of the like greater discourse, but that's just true. Yeah. Uh, the thing that um, I find so interesting that I hadn't thought about is it's like, you know, in its highest form, if we were to give it kind of like the benefit of the doubt, oftentimes the intention could be to keep the work quality, you know? Mm -hmm. And I like thinking about how, you know, maybe in some, I think the system, it's a complex, <laughs> it's a complex subject. Like you said, a lot of it comes from money. Um, but I like this idea that like, sometimes it can be about keeping the work quality and like, that's a value that I can align myself with. So if I were to find other people where that's their intention, then that would feel, then that would feel good to me. Um, yeah. And I hadn't thought about that. Um, okay. So I, I'm trying to think. I want, I really wanted to touch on, and I'm not sure if there's a question here, but just this comment about like capitalism and commercialism mm -hmm. and um, yeah, like not treating our work like a commodity, even though sometimes we do have, sometimes it has to be in a sense to support us. It sounds like you've answered that in a bit by saying like, I don't, I've tried not to rely on the sales of my work to support me. I've found mm -hmm. other ways so that that's not the case. Um, but yeah, has there been, yeah, what have been your practices around like keeping your work kind of sacred and separate from that, even if you do need to sell it in order to like keep your practice going? Mm -hmm. Well, I keep pretty firm boundaries on what I am and am not willing to do. Mm. you know like mm -hmm. sometimes people will get in touch with me and be like okay well can I get this 3d printed object in this color or this size or whatever and sometimes I'm like yes with this object you can and sometimes I say no you can't it exists within these parameters that I've already set mm. or there have been situations where I've been offered an opportunity to like do a storefront display, but there would be mannequins with the brand's clothing on it in the storefront. And I'm like, no, that's not where my work lives. There, there mm. are there are boundaries and lines under which I have to ensure that it, there's a certain it's a certain tone in which one approaches the work. You know, not to say that. that only my ideas on how it can exist are correct but but there's there's a certain level of like propriety that I feel like I need to maintain with the work and that's for me to respect the work which I mm -hmm. feel like are entities on their own you know I I, I don't want to undermine that so there are certain boundaries and I don't think I can really articulate what they all are, but that exists within how I want the work to function and where I'm willing for it to go and where I'm not willing for it Mm. Um, but also I have not really been in a lot of situations where I felt like I have the opportunity to sell out you know that just hasn't really come up I think especially because of the nature of the work it's like big and kind of logistically difficult and so that's that's kept it a little safe mm. yeah because of what it is yeah no I love that though it's like 
Um, I'm willing to do some things, but for the most part, I have to like keep a container around this for the way that I'm, it's intended. Um, yeah, yeah it's not like a hundred percent for sale in any way that you want to use it or, or whatever. Yeah. 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 Totally. And there have also been moments where a discussion about a piece will then become more of like a graphic design meeting. And I'm like, no, 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 that's yeah. not how this works. <laughs> you can't, you can't tell me what to do with the piece. Yeah. This isn't collaborative, unless it's an intentionally collaborative project, that's not going to be the case. So yeah, I, I'm learning, especially over time, and especially as I get a little bit older and I'm more certain in my career that there are moments where it's just like, no, that's not how my work functions. If you want to do that, you got to do it on your own. Mm, yeah. 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 That does seem like a lesson that would come from <laughs> navigating different situations and just like getting older and feeling more confident the learning to say no and set boundaries yeah. in all departments of being. An yeah. Yeah. It's for sure. <laughs> um, okay. So back to this, um, like you've done, I think I read like 20 residencies, many awards, many exhibitions. I read in a recent article that, um, you've been described as having kind of like a meteoric rise in your career. I think that's how you say that word. Um, and I was just wondering, like for people who see that and want to create their own version of that, they want to get their work out there, they want to have opportunities, like in your own perspective, looking back at your path, um, what, what have you attributed that to? Well, that attribution of being meteoric, is so, it's so generous and so kind. It's like really a I'm, I'm so appreciative that anyone thinks that at all. So I'll start with that, that yeah. it doesn't feel that way to me because I've been out here grinding. Yeah. Yeah. Fair. <laughs> Super fair. And so it's not like, uh, I, I say that not to undercut it because it's, that's, it's such a like kind and beautiful way for someone to look at what has happened in my life. But also I have dedicated my life to doing this stuff. Yeah. I have like put lots of a other things aside in order to make the work and in order to follow this path. And so meteoric, I feel like kind of makes it seem magical in some way. And yeah. it's not, it's just dedicated. Okay. <laughs> so, uh, but that being said, I have had some important situations and friendships and opportunities that have helped me along in a huge way you know, of like kind of getting connected in the New York art scene through friends and my collective in the past couple of years has been really, really important and, and helped so much in terms of like finding communities I want to be a part of and hooking into different ways of working and thinking and making that I wouldn't have been able to otherwise. But I mean, I, I think the biggest thing is that the gameness that I was describing earlier in that for a long, long time, I would just take take any opportunity and grab it and do as much as I could or do whatever was possible at the time that led me down a lot of different paths some of which I turned around and went right back and some I kept walking and I think it was that um that kind of energy that has helped maintain me and kind of figure out what I want and what I don't want in the process mm -hmm. yeah so I love I love what you said. It's like, it wasn't magical. Like, <laughs> cause it does, you're totally right. It totally does give, I mean, I've, I'm not under any sort of disillusion that 
you're not an extremely dedicated hard worker, but you're right in that that word gives a feeling of like, oh, it's this like magical anomaly. Um, and yeah, you're saying you've been extremely dedicated out there grinding. Um, and it sounds like the other two things have been saying yes to a lot of things um, and finding community. And I'm super interested in that community piece. What would you recommend to somebody who wants to find like their people, their fellow artists or like supporters within the world? Um, yeah. 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 That's, that's a really good question. Honestly, I feel like I've talked about Instagram too much, but it's so important. It's, it's super important. We're all on there. Yeah. Yeah. We're all we got to talk there. about it. Yeah. It's huge. It's like it or not. And sometimes I like it and sometimes I don't. It is the way that we're able to find people who are making and thinking in similar ways mm. or find people to aspire to be or, you know, find someone. Well, let me, let me reel myself back in and say, one thing that's so great about Instagram is that you're able to position yourself in this greater field and this greater constellation and kind of determine who you want to associate yourself with mm -hmm. in terms of reference. And of course, I'm talking about art making in our world really specifically right now. Mm -hmm. But you know, something that I have done in the past is like, okay, well, who do I feel like is five years ahead of where I want to be? Who do I feel like is 10 years ahead of where I want to be? Well, what have they done? Let me see what opportunities they have had and let me see what galleries they've worked with and let me see who's in their circle. And it kind of gives you this reference point of how people have treated their careers or, or the opportunities that they've had one way or another. Um, and that's really important. I mean, that's kind of a more pragmatic thing, but also some of my really close friendships with art folks now started on Instagram. You know, one of my really dear friends that I've shown with a lot now, we started by just ch DMing, chatting on Instagram, met in person one time, and then now we're really good buds, and I see her quite often. So, like, things develop in different ways, and taking advantage of the great connector that Instagram can be is really important. Mm. And it's so funny, I'm thinking about how, in this way, it comes full circle back to accessibility, because they... I think that it's Instagram is so accessible. Like if you have, if you have a smartphone, which is like still can be a barrier, but for the most part, like anybody can get on there and post their work and find their people. Um, you don't have to live in a major city. Yeah. There's this thing where it's more at your fingertips, like mm -hmm. versus maybe when you first graduated, which we had kind of talked about. Um, mm -hmm. And I love hearing the practicality too of like, yeah, researching what people have done who are where you would like to be I am totally guilty of stalking many artist websites and looking at their CVs which I'm like this is so great that this is a thing that everybody just puts on yeah. their website I mean it's and it, why not it's out yeah. there yeah it's it's useful to know you know it, if you are kind of like charting your desired future how other people have managed that yeah yeah I love all of that um so I want to conclude by asking like what you're working on now. I know we're still in COVID times, hopefully semi nearing the end, but TBD. Um, yeah. Hope. what? Yeah. Let's seriously hope. Uh, yeah. What, anything you have coming up that you'd like to share with us? Yeah. Yeah. So I do have some group shows coming up that I'm really excited about. Um, two in May and one in September and two in May, one is at dinner gallery in Manhattan. 
and that is a food related show so it fits real well into what i'm working on i'm working on this real beautiful um carrot object with vr sculpted greens that kind of like droop in this nice way and a big long stiletto fingernail that's poking back into the carrot so that's going to that show i'm really excited and i'm also in a show at vsop projects in greenport long island um working on some new work for that and then another group show with some really rad folks at kabupita in chicago in september so right now that's that's my future i'm really excited to have a reason to be making this work and have a purpose for it to go out to the world and hopefully as things start opening up even more other stuff will come up i mean i'm really looking forward to and hoping that more public projects occur because i love having one of those cooking in the studio it's it's always exciting for me to work to scale and to think about you know think about all those questions we were talking about earlier of accessibility and community and the intersection between art and community which can be really complicated and i i love navigating that world yeah absolutely i hope you get a public project as well because i would love to see the process now that i feel like i'm very engaged with following you um absolutely love your work and i'm really excited to see um where it goes and yeah i'll definitely link to the group shows and all your information so people can go stalk you and your cv great (laughs) uh thank you so much for coming on really appreciate it yeah thank you so much for having me it was such a treat all right i hope you enjoyed that conversation with grace lee as much as i did I really did. She is so fun to talk to and so grateful for her coming on the show to share all of her wisdom and story with us. So please be sure to check out her work. Everything is linked up for you in the show notes. Again, if you would like to support the show, the Patreon is also there, um, as are the links to our Instagram and you know how to leave a review if you haven't done that yet as well. Other than that, I will see you not next week, but the week after, unless you come over to the Patreon for the bonus episode, that is. Um, And until then, I'm sending you lots of love and tons of magic.